Take your Bible, turn to Job 42. Job chapter 42. Uh, I'm actually going to start reading in in verse 1. Read the whole chapter. Uh, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, uh, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money, a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters and called the name of the first daughter Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Uh, Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we pray that you would give life and light to our hearts. We are creatures of weak faith, and we need to hear from heaven. Not just to hear, but to believe, and we need even help with that. May your spirit be pleased to work within us. We ask for Christ's sake. 
Amen. I do not uh, envy our, our current governor. Governor McMaster has, uh, I think, done a great job in having to sort through uh, all of the challenges of this uh, recent COVID uh, situation. I, I do not envy him. And if you've been watching his uh, public uh, addresses, his updates um, every week on uh, YouTube or on uh, South Carolina television, this uh, one on Friday, I guess, was perhaps the most interesting to me as he's now having to figure out how to navigate a unique uh, problem that's kind of um, really problematic. Uh, as we've kind of, I guess, figured out more about the disease, uh, COVID-19 right now, we've realized that it is a bit of an angel of death, uh, particularly in the nursing homes. Uh, and so if it gets in there, it tends to be catastrophic, not always, but it tends to be. And so uh, every measure has been taken possible to, to keep it from getting into uh, uh, our nursing homes and care facilities of the sort like that in South Carolina. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, over his plan in the last couple of weeks, they've done testing for every single staff, employee, maintenance worker, HVAC worker, um, client, everybody has been tested in every facility in the state. It's pretty amazing. The problem, though, is that they've begun to notice, and not just in South Carolina, this isn't throughout the entire country, is that without the ability to have visitors, these aging people in the image of God have lost the will to live. It's been actually documented all throughout the country where um, dear people who love their families and have missed seeing them have decided it's, it's just not worth it. And the depression has set in and they've stopped eating. Not on purpose, they just don't eat any. They've lost any sort of joy, any sort of will to live and are slowly withering away and dying. They're starving themselves to death because they've just lost the will to continue. I, I do not envy Governor McMaster having to sort out a plan to go, wow, both solutions are not acceptable. Or we don't want COVID-19 to come into our uh, nursing homes and retirement facilities and such like that. But at the same time, we don't want these dear people who are made in the image of God to waste away and die out of losing the will to live. We've got to navigate some sort of moderated position they're working on that currently to try to figure out how to get visitors in in a way that's safe and it's intriguing because it's another one of those great life lessons things that we (laughs) were taught as children but somehow as we get older and grow up to be adults we it's like we get wiser than kindergartners in some fashion and forget all the things that we taught them that no man or woman is an island that we are designed to be with other people. We're designed to be in fellowship with other people. We're designed to be in relationship with other people. I find it intriguing. That's the one part, the beginning in creation in Genesis that God notes is is not good. He's made Man in his image, and he said, it's not good that man is this condition. He's, he's in God's image, but not yet able to fulfill that because he is alone. In order to fulfill the image of God fully, he needs it fully. He needs woman. He needs to be in relationship, not just be by himself. Now, certainly in 
Genesis 1 and 2, that, that's fulfilled in, uh, in the marriage contract. And as intriguing as Genesis 3 hits, well, oh no, that kind of breaks fairly quickly. Uh, and throughout the fullness of the scriptures, we eventually see that it's uh, ultimately uh, in this time and place, that, that union is ultimately fulfilled both in marriage and in the church. With God's people beginning to fill an increasingly greater role of that relationship. In fact, actually even preparing, as we talked about last Sunday evening, that when we die and go into the life to come, marriage stops, but the church does not. The object lesson that was given in the garden of marriage ceases, and the reality, the thing it was pointing to, continues into the future. We are designed to be with the people of God. It is interesting here in Job chapter 42, it's the end of the book, it's uh, the quote, happy ending, it's the restoration of Job. And I, I think it's so intriguing that chapter 42 is almost entirely a relational chapter. Now we think about how Job had everything stripped from him, and it was primarily in our minds as primarily this sort of individual suffering. He is, has his wealth taken from him. He has his children taken from him. He has his wife left with him that at the time may not seem like a good thing, though obviously here it ends up being a good thing. He even has his health taken from him. And we, we think about his suffering so much from this kind of individual perspective of here is a man who's going through the worst possible situation. And then when we're having our own little pity parties, we say, well, I understand because me too. Right? That person was really mean to me so I can understand what Job was going through. But it's intriguing that in chapter 42, when God goes to restore, we as Americans, we would think, well, that restoration is going to be an individual restoration. It was individual suffering at the beginning, so it will be individual restoration at the end. The intriguing thing is that could not be further from the truth. I mean, it's just dead wrong. (laughs) Completely just dead wrong. It's intriguing how it starts here. And we look quickly at Job's comments because I think they form the foundation of the, the rest of the chapter here. I like the chapter division in this one particularly. Uh, chapter 42, verse 1, Job answers the Lord. Now remember, uh, the Lord has finally stopped all the other kind of bozos from talking and has given his final answer to Job. You wanted to hear your accus- you know, your, face your accuser. You wanted to hear uh, why I did what I did. Well, here's what you're going to find out. I'm wiser than you. And the Lord asks him a bajillion questions, just highlighting how little Job knows. He he doesn't know why God made ostriches foolish and silly so that he could laugh at them, but apparently God wanted to laugh at them, and he's allowed to make the ostrich foolish so that he can. He's allowed to do that. He's allowed to make what I think is the hippo absolutely, utterly terrifying. He's allowed to do that because he's God. If he wants to, he can. We can't control either of those creatures, but God can. And he challenges Job, and Job responds in the middle of that interchange and, and basically says, I want to put my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to say anything. And I suspect that it's a, maybe almost a little bit of a cop-out, not entirely. I think 42, you get the perfect response from Job. 
the Lord continues on in, in 39, and, I mean in 4041 with, with Leviathan and Behemoth, and here in 42 you have Job's final response to God's portrait of who God's, uh, God is, what his character is like. And he says, look, I know, God, that you can do all things, <laughs> that you do whatever you want to do. Nothing stands in your way. And, and here, interestingly, he begins to quote God and acknowledge what the Lord has said and respond correctly. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job's saying, it was me. I was the one. I, I was talking too much. I uttered what I didn't understand. I was talking. I, I, I let my lips kind of flap a little bit much. I did not understand things that were too wonderful for me. And I love how I think verse 5 gets at the heart of what Job is interacting with. I had heard of you, God, by hearing of the ear. I had this abstract knowledge of who you were, and I knew you were great in concept. But now I understand. I don't, I don't understand in concept anymore. <laughs> I understand in reality. Here in America, we would say that he made the journey from like, you know, head to heart. The things that he understood in, in concept, he now begins to understand in truth and faith and deeper reality. And I think actually Job shows uh, the entire thing here. His repentance is really uh, conditioned kind of really one primary thing. He had too small of a view of God. When he was being mouthy back to the Lord and saying, well, I need to answer, I need to see my accuser. My accuser needs to answer me. Why, why am I being punished for crimes that I haven't even been accused of? I need to know what I've been accused of so I can address it. And the whole time, and his, his, he, he's treating the Lord almost like a peer. Someone who's a little bit powerful, a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser, but still in the same category as a peer. The way that I would treat you or you would treat me. If, if you're going to say things about me, okay, well, let me know what they are so I can figure out if they're true and I can correct them. Or if they're false, that we can talk about it and you can be corrected. We can sort it out. Instead, what, what Job begins to understand here is that the Lord is too big for that. He's not one that we, we interact with as a peer because he's not finite like we are. I mean, that's been the heart of the Lord's response to Job here is, Job, you just don't understand. You are, by definition, Job, you're finite. And I love how it, it, <laughs> it ends with him in verse 6. What is his statement? Therefore, and I, I'm going to kind of tweak this just a little bit, I'm probably where I belong to be. Remember, this is conversation most likely taking, still, taking place still on uh, the trash heap outside of town where you burn trash and he's covered with the ashes as he sits on top of the ash heap. And he says, look, in reality, this is the place I probably ought to be. 
I belong in the place of dust and ashes. I I belong in the condition of repentance because I am the small one here. I am the problem in the situation. It's not you, God. It really actually is all me. And I love how there's no request for change. There's no like, oh, I got it. Now give me everything back. There's no, it's just he acknowledges the wonder of who God is. And his relationship with the Lord is restored. And it's, uh, I would even say not just restored, but it surpasses where it's ever been. Remembering Job has been a blameless man all the way, all along through this book. I mean, he's messed up a bit in his overspeaking. But from the very beginning, he's been acknowledged as the most righteous man around. And here his understanding even deepens from there. The three parts to the restoration that we'll look at is, uh, first, the Lord then turns to restoring uh, his relationship with his friends. Uh, I suspect that it would have been very easy for Job to have been, we could generously say, livid at his friends. I mean, remembering that in some form or fashion, these friends all sat with him for a week, at least, then when they begin to finally address him, they say, Job, we're, they never say we're sorry that you're suffering. They never really say that we're sad that you're suffering or that we hurt with you. They all say in some form or fashion, Job, we've, we know why you're suffering. And it's your fault. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, Job would have had fairly good grounds, and I would imagine a really hard time not wanting to rip their heads off. I mean, if I'd had 10 kids just killed in a house collapse and had a friend and the first words out of their mouth are some form of, well, it's your fault. Even if it were my fault, I'd want to kill them. So it's interesting that there's this massive rift that's been left remaining. Now, the Lord has already restored the rift between God and Job, but now there's this massive chasm between him and his friends. Again, their relationship, I mean, it's so bad that when Job even, I mean, remember, when Job defends himself and says, guys, I don't have any secret sin, they call him a windbag. Saying, "You're, you're lying, your words are just empty air. can't imagine how, how easy it would be for Job to hate them with the fire of a thousand sons to hate them. And interestingly, the Lord then gives restoration, not just between him and the friends, but also between Job and the friends. And he says, guys, look, I love verse 7. <laughs> he speaks to the friends themselves. Spoke these words to Job, to the friends. My anger burns against you and your friends, for you have not spoken what's right. It wasn't Job's fault. You have spoken more than you knew, and in doing so, you've made accusations against Job. And now, as part of the restorative process, interestingly, the Lord says it's time for them to make sacrifice. Remembering that likely when this is written, there's no temple 
There's no tabernacle. There's no sacrificial system. It's long before Moses. And so intriguing, uh, they need a priest. There is, however, no priesthood at the time. So the Lord, as part of their restoration, this is absolutely mind-blowing to me, says it's time for you now to make sacrifices. You need a priest. Job will be your priest. Take your animals, take them to Job, and let Job be the one that helps sacrifice with you. He'll be the one that functions as your priest. And in fact, that one, Job, will be the one who even prays for you for your restoration with God. And so they do. And they do exactly, verse 9 tells us exactly what God has told them to do. The Lord hears Job's prayer. He answers Job's prayer and he restores them. I think it's intriguing, though, how the Lord has designed this, where all of these men are going to have their relationship with God reestablished, but it's intriguing how he does it is by restoring and reestablishing their relationship with one another. He's designed them for relationship. He's built them that way. So that even with uh, this kind of ridiculous need for forgiveness, he builds the interaction in such a way that would force the, the, the matter. And I think it's intriguing, again, how, how easy it is for Christians today to kind of forget this function in the church. Not that uh, we have each other as our priests, uh, no, Christ as our high priest. yes. But again, forgetting that that element of the church where we're designed to function in such a way as to restore with each other and help each other in our relationship with the Lord and with one another. Again, we might say, forget about the restorative aspect of the church amongst her people. I mean, do you think about that? We talk about gathering and perfecting the saints, but like part of the perfecting process is for you to be in relationship with each other and to help your neighbor see Jesus. Help your, your brother or sister sitting in the chairs beside you without the blue X's, with a mask. To help them see Jesus, to help them grow in their understanding of this great God. And friends, I would suggest that certainly in the American church today, this is amazingly countercultural. Because the, the, the Western church, the American church, has been infected with a nasty virus. And it's not COVID 19. We have been infected with a virus called consumerism. And consumerism is this it reduces my relationship to the church to a transactional relationship. I will give something as long as I get something. And the ideal church is the church where I give the least and I get the most. It's the same way that when we buy cars, we like deals where we can give the least amount of money and get the most amount of car. Unfortunately, that same consumer mentality has infected the church. And and we have Christians that interact with the church with how little effort can I put into the church and receive back as much blessing as possible? And that is, it's evil. That, That thinking is just straight up evil. 
It's evil for a number of reasons. One, because it is unbearably selfish. Because the entire way that a consumer evaluates uh, their, their economy is through their own benefit. How little can I give and how much can I get? It is inherently selfish. Further, it is one who is designed to tax the system, to, to reduce the, the blessings, to consume, to, to leave the equation with fewer things than before. Instead of one who's, what can I bring to the situation? I mean, put differently, it's amazing how easy it is to see when we see it in different settings. Can you imagine a a young couple, they're getting ready to get married and they come to meet with me for premarital counseling and, and start conversations with them, you know, talk, okay, what's marriage going to be like? And one of them, it, for the story, it doesn't matter which one. Uh, one of them says, you know what, I'm just looking for a marriage where I can put in as little effort as possible and get as much out of it as I can. Is that a wedding I need to be performing? Is that a ceremony that I'm going to be excited about? Okay, man. How many days until they're back in my office for pre, you know, post-marital counseling? Do they make it through the honeymoon before the first fight? Of course not. I mean, we see it. That's ludicrous. The idea of how little effort could I put in and how much blessing could I get out. But it's intriguing how, how easy it is for us to view the church that way. Again, forgetting this kind of corporate nature of how God has designed us to function in in this restorative process. And I would even go so far as to say, do you think about that is your mission in this church? Is to help these people know the Lord Christ even more. That's your job. It's not my job only. I, I mean, I happen to be blessed. I get to be paid to do it. You don't. But it's, it's no less your job. I just do it professionally. Again, if, if you're going to do that, though, you can see the immediate problem is, is, well, what about me? It's my favorite part in Hook, the old movie. Great movie. What about me? What about me? I, I, need to, I need to take care of me. I need to, to watch out for me. I'm the one who's got to, I'm in charge of taking care of me. You've seen Hook. It's a great part. It's where he begins to stuff his pockets with gold and tries to run off robbing everybody else. It's a great moment. You see, that's actually why the beginning of chapter 42 is so important because if there is not a great God in charge, that makes good sense. If there's not a great God in charge of everything, guess what? You do need to worry about you. Stuff your pockets with gold, plunder this church, take everything you can from it, and run and do that to the next one if there's not a great God in charge. But that's why verses 1 through 6 are so important important before verses 7 through 9. I don't have to worry about me because God already is. And in fact, actually, he cares about me far more than I do. I mean, even sinfully as I do and you know, self-absorbed as I am and as preoccupied with self as I am, he cares a whole lot more. And he thinks about me far more than I think about myself, and that is a really impressive truth. 
But it, this idea of the greatness of God becomes the foundation for uh, our ministry to one another. Think about this again. How easy it would have been for Job to just be rip-roaring angry at his friends. And yet here he's the one that's called to function as their priest. And the only answer he can give is because God is great. He can forgive these men. He can pray for their well-being. He can pray for their blessing. He can pray for their restoration, not because they were good men, because they weren't, but because God is big. Because God is in charge. I've said it before. I I started saying it actually months ago, but I'm going to continue talking about it. That's my biggest concern, actually, with COVID. My biggest concern with COVID is that this, the self-imposed quarantine, the kind that we've been in and, and governmental imposed and things like that, where we've been allowed to live with only the voice in our own head for a really long time. And I'm going to tell you, there's probably not a voice you need to listen to less than your own voice. But yet in this current situation, current climate, we've been put in a situation where we get to listen to our own voice a whole lot more or find the portion of the internet that can confirm our own inner voice. And I suspect that when, I suspect we're actually already seeing it, but we're going to have some serious growing pains just as a nation, but particularly as a church even and, and individuals as we come back to life with everybody else because I've been able to live for months only thinking about me. And now I have to think about all of you clowns, and that's hard, and it hurts, and it's inconvenient, and it upsets my dreams about me. Obviously, I make fun of it, but that's what we're going to do. I mean, think about how little we've had to compromise for many of us over the last three months. We've been able to do exactly what we wanted to. To go back to body life where you have to compromise, where you have to give ground, where you have to live in a way that sometimes is inconvenient to you for the benefit of your brother. Man, it's going to be hard. I like how this uh, theology of the greatness of God is, is the fuel for Job's ministry to his friends, how he's able to minister to them and, and help restore them, not because they deserve it, because they don't, not because uh, he's you know, in, in good standing with them, because honestly, he was probably very angry with them at this point, but because God is so great. I love how the Lord then displays his greatness and further restoring Job. Excuse me, verse 10, after he's helped restore his relationship with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, It's interesting, Elihu's left out of that. I suspect that's because Elihu at least tries to offer uh, a portrait of the greatness of God. He's not very good at it, but he at least tries it. And I think he gets uh, gets off on, on that one. But then when it comes time for the Lord to restore Job's fortunes, it's intriguing. How does he do it? Does he, you know, poof, hey, look. Magic genie, there's, you know, a million camels for you. Poof, you know, there's a pile of gold. Go do with it what you wish. Here's the largest diamond ever seen. No, no, it doesn't do that. It's intriguing. The Lord provides for his family, for the righteous community of God to rally around him and to provide for him. And it's intriguing how they, they provide a number of things for him. Uh, one, 11, uh, they came to him, brothers and sisters, uh, all known before, and they ate bread with him. At his house. They, they begin this process of restoration, not just financially, but emotionally. 
and spiritually and personally. They begin the process of, of healing the wound. I, I just Can you imagine the trauma that Job would have had? How do you think he sat through rainstorms after this? Knowing that every time a big wind came, the last one was the one that killed 10 of his kids. Yeah, how do you think he felt every time he got like a little rash? I mean, is this leprosy again? Is it going to rot off? I mean, you can, you can imagine the emotional difficulty of, of that, right? Everybody that's had a really bad scar knows what that's like. I have a scar on my shin from playing church softball 15 years ago, and if you tap it right now, it sends shivers all the way from my toe to my hip because I did nerve damage on one of the bases. You can imagine, Job has that emotionally, and it's interesting how the Lord is bringing the people of God around him and, and encouraging his family comes to minister, to share fellowship with him, to strengthen him, and, oh yes, they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all of the difficult things that the Lord had brought upon him. He, they come and they minister to him, they lift his spirits, they strengthen him, and then, oh yeah, by the way, they also give him money. They bring him piece of money and a ring of gold, and it gives the impression the family kind of gives him that starter seed again, that, that starter bit of money, and the Lord blesses Job's investment, so much so that everything is doubled from the beginning of the book. You remember he was the richest man in the region when the book started, and now he has twice everything. And it's interesting, in fact, actually, that just one little kind of note, uh, all of like the, the uh, sheep, the camels, the oxen, the female donkey, that, that literally, those are just double numbers. Those numbers are big. It's intriguing, though, how the Lord gives him 10 more children. Uh, and there's an implication here is that uh, the reason being is when the Lord took all of the wealth away, it was all taken away. So when it's restored, it's restored double. When the Lord took his 10 kids away, well, those kids are waiting for Job in the life to come. So when he restores him and gives him double, he only gives him 10 more. Because 10 in heaven plus 10 on earth is 20 total. So he doubles his number by only giving him 10 more. It's this neat little kind of, I think, uh, hint at the joy of the life to come and the family of God being knit together in the heavenly places. But there's, I think, a natural temptation again for us to do uh, the counterpoint to what Job's friends did. Job's friends say, well, Job, you're a bad man, and so you had bad things happen to you. And now there's a natural temptation for us, thinking that we're good people. Uh, there's a natural temptation for us to say, well, Job, you did good things, now God gave you good things. Friends, that is the exact same theology that Job's friends offer. You did good things, Job. Now you get good blessings. That's also called the prosperity gospel. It's also called wrong. It's not good. But yet it's a way that we are inclined to think to say, well, Job did good things. He, he restored his friends. He, he had the people of God around him and he, he repented. So now he's given all of his stuff back. In fact, actually, that, that couldn't be further from the larger plot line of the book. <laughs> we worship a great God who's big, who is filled with mercy. See, the marvelous thing to remember throughout this book is when the book of Job started, what was God's um, view of Job? He loved him. He treasured him. He delighted in him. What happened to God's view when Job had everything taken away from him? 
He loved him, he delighted in him, and he treasured him. What happened when Job was even running his mouth in the latter part of the book? The Lord loved him, the Lord delighted in him, the Lord treasured him. What happened after the restoration? The Lord loved him, the Lord delighted him, the Lord treasured him. The Lord's affection for his people doesn't wax and wane like ours does. And it's important to, to remember that the large underpinning of this entire book is that the Lord is generous and merciful toward his people. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I, I do, again, worry there's this natural tendency for us to want to look at our circumstances and to evaluate God's affection for us based on our circumstances. And the problem is, sometimes our circumstances don't match God's word. He's told us that he loves us, his children. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Uh, He's told us in Psalm 132, he's a covenant-keeping God that will keep his covenant forever. Sometimes my circumstances might not match that. And I do worry at times where we want to then go by and evaluate our circumstances instead of just evaluating God's promises. I would end with really just a simple kind of application for this. Uh, I've said already, but continue to say, I suspect that the the emotional and spiritual and relational consequences of COVID uh, will last, I'm going to guess, at least a year. Whether or not the physical and those sorts of things continue to last, the emotional side of it, the spiritual side of it, I think we're probably going to see for a better part of a year. And I know that as we continue with this, The challenge for us is going to be, again, we so desperately want to be filled with self. And I also know that the more we're filled with self, the the harder it's going to make our relationships with each other. Also, the less valuable it's going to make them, and even more so, the less valuable it's going to make our relationship with God. And so I would challenge you to labor these weeks for the remedy that Job himself goes that... uh, I had heard of you by the ear, but, oh God, now in your word, I see you by sight. Now, the eyes of faith, that we would begin to understand the greatness of our God, and in doing so, rejoice and worship and have our hearts transformed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so mighty, so great, and so big. We need not fear anything. Forgive us for how quickly we are contented with a God made in our own image. Forgive us for that, and O Lord, open our eyes that we might see your greatness and your glory. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.